Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to Job chapter 31. And last week as we uh, were working through the book of Job, we looked at chapter 29, 30, and 31. And we saw in the book that this is very much of an autobiographical description of himself Job gives us in, in those chapters. In chapter 29, he kind of reminisced on how highly exalted he was within the community prior to the, those satanic afflictions that came upon him by the, by the plan and purpose of God. And then in chapter 30, we saw him describing how great he was afflicted in all the ways that Satan brought the affliction upon him. And then in chapter 31, Job lays out his utter innocence that even though he is suffering so badly, it's not because of any great sin that he has committed. And uh, so last week we saw that Job in, in this uh, transition from being highly exalted, greatly afflicted, utterly innocent, was a type a foreshadowing, a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. For no one was more greatly and highly exalted than Christ. No one was more greatly afflicted than Christ. No one was more utterly innocent than Jesus Christ. For He died in our place, not for His own sin, for our sin, that He might become our Savior. So our focus last week was on Job being a type, a picture of Jesus Christ. But there's some other great truths found in Job chapter 31 that I didn't want us to move uh, forward in the book until we take a few minutes to uh, consider and examine uh, a few more things here. Uh, one of the things we learned as we uh, went over Job chapter uh, 31 last time was that the whole chapter is Job setting forth all of these different categories of sin that he's innocent of. That his afflictions are not because he gave himself to these various kinds of sin. Had he given himself to these areas of sin, then God would be totally just in afflicting him and bringing all this suffering and pain into his life. But he's arguing for his innocence. And all of this is laid out in chapter 31. So for example, just, just read verse starting in verse 1 of Job chapter 31. He mentions that he has not been guilty of lusting after other women. So he says in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does He not see my ways and number all my steps? And so this is the first category of sin that he claims he was innocent on. Because he says, if I, was, if I was guilty of doing this, then God would bring calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity. So he is confirming his belief in retributive justice. But he's just affirming that he's innocent. He is guiltless. And as you walk through the rest of the chapter you see that he deals with falsehood. He's innocent of falsehood. He's innocent of adultery, verses 9-12. through 12. He's innocent of mistreating his servants, of abusing the needy. And here he includes the poor, the widows, the orphans. In verses 24-28, through 28, he's, he's innocent of idolatry, either the worship of money or the worship of the sun and the moon. In the next section, he's, he's innocent of rejoicing at the misfortune of his enemies. His enemies have bad things happen to him. He doesn't rejoice in it. He, he's not guilty of, of, of finding pleasure in the demise of his enemies. He's a very godly man. Next section, he's, he's innocent of neglecting the traveler or concealing his own sin or abusing the land. Think of 
King Ahab who stole Naboth's vineyard. He said, I didn't do any of that stuff. If I had, God would be just in disciplining me. But I have not done that. So throughout this section, again, Job is saying that this was a great motivation to him to live a godly life because he feared the judgment and discipline of his God. And that is a principle that is worth meditating on because this is very valuable for us today as well. The second thing we want to look at also at the end of our study this morning is that Job suffered as an innocent man. He experienced unjust suffering. And you and I will experience that as well. And there's a reason for that. And we'll get into that later on. But let's go back to this notion that Job throughout all of chapter 31 is affirming his innocence. And the reason why he was living above these sins and not engaging in these sins is because he feared God. He feared that if he gave himself to sin, that then he would be disciplined by God. And if you notice, for example, so I've already read verse 2 and 3, but look again at verse 3. Is not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? And he said, this guarded my heart. I was motivated to live a godly life because I know that if I gave in to sin, any of these categories of sin that he's listed in this chapter, then I would justly deserve calamity and disaster from God if I give way to sin. In verse 23, notice what he says here. And this is after he talks about his innocence. He has not abused the needy, whether the poor, the widows, or the orphans. He says in verse 23, For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty, I can do nothing. So he feared calamity from God for living a sinful life. And he said, that was a terror to me. It kept me from giving in to sin. It kept me pure. It kept me striving to live a godly life. Now, I'm not claiming to be totally without sin. No man is totally without sin other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's wrestling with the magnitude of sin to bring such great judgments. And he feared that. And it was a terror to him, but it kept him pure. It was a motivation to give a godly life because he feared the discipline of God. In verse 28, and this comes at the end of Job saying that he was not guilty of idolatry, either trusting in money or the worship of the sun or the moon. He said, for that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. So in all this, what what Job is giving us a godly example of is that one of the great motivations for us to live a godly life is to fear the discipline of our Father in heaven. And I think oftentimes we forget about this. But this was the very thing throughout the whole chapter that Job is saying motivated him to fight and avoid and to to stay away from sin because he feared the discipline, the judgment of God. And I think the the point of application for us today is that all believers should fear divine discipline. This is something that every single one of us can have happen to us and will have happen to us, but it's a motivation for us as well to fight against sin, to strive against sin, because our Father in heaven may choose to discipline us for our sin if we give way to it. So in Hebrews chapter 12, you may want to turn there. This is a, really a great parallel to Job chapter 31 because the author of Hebrews uh, has a lot to say about the importance of divine discipline 
of Christians by their Heavenly Father as a warning for us as well. So for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, the author says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. So, so Job's godly attitude reminds us that every believer should also fear God's discipline. And that can be a great motivation to us to live a godly life. If you're beginning to play with sin, if you're beginning to be tempted by sin, you better start to think about the potential of God disciplining you if you give way to it, or if you continue in it and don't repent. Because this is a reality of our relationship with God as our Father through Jesus Christ. One of the things He promises us, one of the ways He treats us as His children is He will discipline us like any good earthly father will discipline their children. In verse 5, the author of Hebrews 12 says, Don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. And what he means by this is don't despise it or don't think that it's unlikely just because you haven't experienced maybe the discipline of God recently. Don't let that lull you into sleep thinking, okay, you know, God hasn't disciplined me yet because of this sin I've been engaging in, so maybe I'm safe, maybe He won't. And the author says, don't think lightly of it. God is very long-suffering. He's very merciful. He may delay, but you never know at any point in time if you continue to pursue a sin, your Heavenly Father may very well deal with you and it will be something you would not want to experience. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. So that if God does send sufferings or trials or problems into your life as discipline for sin, that you lose heart. Or that you become depressed and hopeless. No, there's, it's your Father who's doing it. See, sometimes we forget that God is always watching us. He's our Father. He's in heaven. He's always listening to us. His eye is always upon you and me. Our innermost thoughts are bugged by the Holy Spirit. The eye of God is like a hidden camera observing your every movement. Wherever you go, God's eyes are upon you. Don't ever think you can engage in a sin that God doesn't know about. He's standing right there with you in His omnipresence. He's with us wherever we are. It's quite foolish for the believer to think, you know, look over his shoulder. Well, no one sees me when I'm looking at pornography. No one's watching me when I'm doing it. My parents aren't in the room. Nobody else is in the office. So I can watch it. God's seeing you. God's eyes are upon you. Don't think lightly of His discipline. He may very well bring it this very day. And when He brings it, don't faint. It's for your good, as we'll see in just a moment. But Proverbs 15, verse 11 says, Shale and abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. God has, hears every thought you have in your head. Every vile, lustful, wicked thought. He hears it. He sees it. And the very fact that He does ought to motivate us to quickly repent whenever we're being tempted. Or if we're in a sin, to quickly repent and get out of it. You see, God disciplines all of His children. All of us get it in our life. There is no child of God that will not receive discipline. Why? Because there's none of us that are sinless. We are all still sinful. We wrestle with our flesh. We wrestle with our sin nature. And the Father, our Father knows that. And that's why every child that He saves by His grace, He will discipline. 
In verse 6, he says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son or daughter whom He receives. Every one of them, He scourges. So some of our trials and sufferings and problems in life, not all of them, thank God, some of them are from God's discipline. Not all of them, but some of them. So here we are reminded that God disciplines us, but He does it in love. Now remember back in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, what did the author exhort the readers to do? He said, lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us. Lay it aside. Cast it from you. The reason why, if we don't, the Lord, our Father, may discipline us. And if He disciplines us, however... It's always going to be in love. He will still discipline us, but it's going to be in love. Just like any good father who disciplines his child will do it in love. It's not because he hates the child. He loves the child. God loves us so much that He doesn't want to allow us to remain in our sins. So He sends sufferings and afflictions and illnesses and trials into our life. But He does it in love to bring us out of it. You see, the Christian life is a constant battle with indwelling sin. And our Heavenly Father knows that. We're not glorified yet. So part of the process of our sanctification is Him disciplining us when we go astray. Now, discipline is not the same thing as condemnation. Discipline has to do with training and growth in godliness Condemnation has to do with punishment and guilt and condemnation. That They're not the same. We will never come under the condemnation of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We're not under God's condemnation, but we are under His discipline, His training. But that will bring suffering and afflictions our way. But it's always in love. God does it not because he's, He hates us, Or because He's overly angry with us and rejecting it. No, He loves us. And we have to remember that. So you don't faint while you're being disciplined. You don't become depressed or sink under the trial or become hopeless. He's always doing it in love. Look at uh, the rest of the verses here. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And so he's merely saying that all children of God will become partakers of divine discipline at times in our life. Again, we have a lot of trials and afflictions that are not the result of sin. We're going to get into that in a moment. But this is a great motivation for us to avoid sin, to fight against sin, to try to make a short end of sin if we fall into it because of a godly fear of our Father's discipline. All have become partakers of it. None of us will escape it. If you're without discipline in your life, then you're an illegitimate child. So really, being disciplined is a sign of God's love for us because we all wrestle with sin. Some of those sins, God will choose to discipline us. And that's a sign, that's a mark that He loves you. He's dealing with you in that area of sin. He wants you to come clean. So what are some of the the reasons for the Father's discipline of us? Now again, this was a motivation for Job not to fall into sin. And it should be a motivation for us as well. But the reasons for discipline the author gives us, for example, in verse 10 of Hebrews 12, he says, for they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. God always will discipline us when we fall into sin for our good. He is a good God. All pain has a purpose. 
All suffering can be sanctifying. God is good and He intends good even when He brings discipline upon the lives of His children. There's a lot of examples of this. Remember Joseph? Genesis 50, verse 20, talking to his brothers who mistreated him. Here you got the dysfunctional family. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. So Joseph is kind of an innocent sufferer here, kind of like Job. But he said to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Whenever God sends an affliction into our life, whether it's for discipline or not, it's always for good. He's going to work good out of it. And Joseph believed that. In Psalm 119, verse 71, David said, It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Through the affliction that God brought into his life, it worked for good. It brought him back to the Word of God. It taught him and motivated him to learn the Word and to live the Word. It was good for him that he was afflicted. And of course, Paul in Romans 8, God causes all things to work together for good. Whether it's discipline or whether it's trials and sufferings for other reasons, it's all for our good. That's the nature of our God who loves us and is a good God. Richard Baxter said, the good shepherd is not drowning his sheep when he washes them, nor killing them when he shears them. His washings are needed cleansings. His shearings are necessary strippings. So when the good shepherd comes to shear his sheep, it's for our good. Everything that God ordains that comes into our life is ultimately for our good. And God is in control of all of it. God isn't just coming to your life and... and uh, coming after the trial or after the suffering and just trying to pick up the broken pieces of your life. A lot of people have that view of God. That's not the God of the Bible. God is sovereign in control of the trial. He's in control of the reason for it, the length of it, and the purpose of it. God is totally in control of all that. He's not just rushing into your life after some disaster comes our way and we cry out to God and He's just trying to put together the pieces, you know, like Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. People's, that's the way God, a lot of people think God is working, but He's not. He's in control of the whole process. But He's working it ultimately for good. It's not like you get in, if you get in a car accident, you take your car to the body repair shop, a lot of people think, well, God's just there to help repair all the suffering, the afflictions, the trials of my life. No, He's in control of all. He's planned it all. I like John Piper's uh, quote on this. He says, it's the difference between the surgeon who plans the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews us up after a freak accident. God is the doctor planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. So the trials, the afflictions, the sufferings, again, whether for discipline or for any other reason, are all there because God wants them to be there to do us good. That's the reason. So the first purpose in our discipline when it comes from God is for our good. Secondly, that we might share His holiness. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. That's Proverbs 17, verse 3. So that God ordains our afflictions as the refining fires of God's discipline to remove our dross, to increase our holiness and our purity. And that means that sometimes God's afflictions, when it does come for, for sin, is a medicine that tastes horrible and can be very painful in and of itself, but it's necessary to, to heal the spiritual disease. The ultimate good for a Christian when we come under divine discipline is for our sanctification, be made holy, to be made more like Christ. 
And then the, the last reason for our Father's discipline for sin is that it might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to make us more like our righteous Savior. And when we submit to those afflictions from our God and we repent and we humble ourselves, then we can truly gather grapes from the thorns. We can smell the roses in the midst of all the thorns and pain that it may bring into our life. Jesus said in John 15, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it might bear more fruit. And a lot of this discipline is pruning us. It's taking away things from our life. And we thank God You're chopping me down. And He's not. He's pruning that more growth may be stimulated in our life. So all heavenly, fatherly discipline is ultimately for our good. And again, to avoid this, that was the motivation for Job. I don't want the Father's discipline. So I'm going to fight sin. And he did not give in to all those types of sins that he listed. For children, for us today, who are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we will all experience a measure of God's discipline. And sometimes that discipline can be quite severe. And this is a motivation to live a godly life, to avoid God's discipline. You remember back up in verse 6, the author said that He scourges every son whom He receives. And a scourge means to beat with a whip or a lash. It's a flogging as punishment. Jesus received the scourging before His crucifixion. The very same word. Sometimes, if the believer gives in to sin, the Father will discipline us and scourge us. In other words, it can be a severe painful ordeal. He does it out of love. He does it for our good. He does it for our holiness. But it's something we certainly should want to avoid if we can by God's grace. In Proverbs 13, verse 24, it says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And God loves us so much that sometimes He will discipline us for sin and He will discipline us diligently and sometimes severely. So in all of this, we know that there is a sorrow that can come from God's discipline. And this is what Job wanted to avoid. And we should want to avoid it as well. In Hebrews 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. It can be very sorrowful. We will live in, in periods of pain and agony and suffering under the disciplining hand of our Father. He does it in love, but it's not joyful. You don't want to go through this. It's sorrowful. It will bring sorrows into your life. What are some examples of that in the New Testament? Well, in Corinth, Corinth had a lot of problems. One of their problems was they were engaging in the Lord's Supper without judging the body rightly. Some of them were not sharing their food with the agape meal afterwards. They were despising the body. And Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means they've died. Merely because their attitude in the Lord's Supper was not pleasing to God. That's divine discipline. John speaks in 1 John 5.16 that there is a sin leading to death. Sometimes a believer will fall into sin and not repent and continue to engage in it. And God says, okay, I'm going to stop your sin and I'm going to stop your heart. That will stop your sin. I'm going to stop your life. That'll stop your sin. And sometimes He may do that. There's a sin unto death. In 1 Corinthians 5, here's a man living in immorality in the church. 
engaging in immorality that he wasn't repenting of. And you want to know the discipline he came under. Paul says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. How would you like to have your body turned over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh? That's a motivation to repent, to flee. So in all of this, we see that Job chapter 31 gives us the godly example that I am aware of God's discipline. I don't want God's discipline. So He gave Himself to fight against committing and falling into all those different sins that He listed. That is a godly motivation for us. If we are wrestling with sin, if we're on the edge of contemplating a sin, if we're being tempted by a sin, you better think twice, and so should I, before we give in to it. Because you may very well bring the discipline of your Heavenly Father down upon your life, and it will be sorrowful. And Job knew that. And it was a great motivation to live a godly life because he wanted to avoid the discipline of God. See, that's a tremendous reminder for all of us here today because it's a battle that we're in all the time against our flesh, against our desires. And sometimes, unfortunately, we give way. But the Father's discipline, the reality of it, the certainty that we'll all experience to some degree in our life is a great motivation to repent quickly and to get back with the Lord. So that's one of the things in this um, chapter of Job 31 that I wanted to focus on before uh, we move on. Because this discipline can occur in our lives through troubles at work, problems at home, trying circumstances, temptations, physical health concerns, sufferings of many kinds. And again, let me just emphasize that not all of our sorrows and struggles and trials are due to father, our Father's discipline. And the, the number of them, sometimes it's hard, it's, it's hard to predict. I think the, the Spirit of God will make us aware of the sin in our life when it's discipline from his hand i think i think we'll know i think he'll give us that that insight and we'll be quick to repent but i think whenever trials come into our life the godly response would be like david in psalm 139 search me O god and know my heart try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way lord is this problem in my life is it because of sin is this suffering is this disaster is this painful circumstance because of sin show it to me lord that i might repent of it and if it is if he reveals that to you then you can repent if it's if he doesn't convict you of anything maybe it's not because it's for some other sanctifying reason but the discipline of God is something we want to avoid uh, at all costs. In Psalm 38, and this is probably when David, Psalm 38 is one of the Psalms he probably wrote in light of his adultery with Bathsheba and losing the consequences of losing that child. And he said in Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. This is David. This is a man after God's own heart crying out to God, O Lord, rebuke me not in Your wrath and chasten me not in Your burning anger. For Your arrows have sunk deep into me and Your hand is pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of Your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. And on and on and on. You ought to read Psalm 38. It's just Him just under the discipline of His heavenly Father. So it's a, it's a tremendous motivation. What, what Job is giving to us here, a godly example of, of fighting against sin and repenting of sin out of the godly fear of our Lord, the fear of our, of the discipline of our Father. Now, that's not a fear of judgment or wrath or hell. It's just a fear of, of what He may do out of His love for us to make us uh, more like His Son. 
The second thing I want to emphasize uh, really in this thinking about uh, Job chapter 31 again, and that's just the reality that sometimes we suffer in this life not because of our sin. So I've, I've talked about the motivation for Job who 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 turned away from sin out of fear of God's discipline. But Job suffered tremendously not because of his sin. There are other reasons for afflictions and trials. Not all of them are because of our sin. Not all of them are because of our Father's discipline. Job is a classic example. He was a godly man who suffered not because of his sin. Now we're told that at the very beginning of the book, as you well remember, where Job was uh, spoken of concerning the Lord. When the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. So that all of Job's sufferings, none of it was due to his sin. It was all due to God wanting to showcase Job's faith that it was genuine. That he didn't worship God just because God made him wealthy and God made him healthy. He didn't worship God just for the blessings of God. He worshiped God for God's sake. He worshiped the Lord. And so God sicked the devil on him. God was in control. God initiated it. God set the parameters. And Satan came and took away all of Job's family. All, all of his children, all of his wealth. And then in chapter 2, he took away all of his health. And in the midst of all that, Job's faith was, was revealed as not being tied to the blessings of God. At the end of chapter 1, Job could say, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be God. God gave it to me. God chose to take it all away. But I still praise God. I still bless God. He did not worship God. His faith was not just tied to His blessings. Is yours? So if God took it all away, would we still bless God? Praise God? Job did. In chapter 2, he lost all of his health with these incredible sore boils that as he describes it through the rest of the book is such a painful ordeal, agonizing, scraping himself, turning his skin black, just rotting off. It was a horrible disease. His wife told him to curse God and die. And he said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. No, he was an innocent sufferer. And sometimes, and this is the second point I think to draw from this, it's the the exact opposite from my first point that uh, sometimes we receive divine discipline for our sin. But sometimes we receive sufferings which are not tied to any sin in our life. Believers sometimes are innocent sufferers. And some of you all may be in that condition here this morning as well. Now, we've already emphasized that Job was an innocent sufferer. Therefore, he was a type of Christ. That's what we looked at uh, last week. It's a beautiful picture of how Job in, in so many ways prefigures the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the greatest innocent sufferer of all history, of all the universe. Because he suffered not because of his own sin. He had no sin. He suffered for our sins. He was an innocent sufferer. He was holy. He was pure. He was completely without any sin. But the reality is, though Job suffered innocently, prefiguring Jesus' suffering innocently, sometimes you will too. Like Job, sometimes you and I will suffer great afflictions great trials, great pain, great illnesses, totally unrelated to any sin that we've committed against God in our life. Just as Job, 
so with us. Now it's interesting that what we do read is that the pattern of our suffering, even when we suffer innocently, is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So sometimes you and I in this world will suffer uh, unjustly through circumstances, through people, through whatever it may be, we will suffer and be afflicted unjustly. We don't deserve it. But in doing that, the reason why sometimes we go through that kind of suffering is because God wants us to be made like His Son. And there's no greater innocent sufferer than Jesus Christ. And sometimes God will ordain in your life suffering, unjust suffering, unjust persecution, trials, afflictions, sicknesses, for no other reason than to conform us to make us more like Jesus Christ who suffered innocently. And it almost brings a bit of glory to that kind of suffering because we're gradually being conformed to the very image of our Savior. You remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says that for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ have been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean, being conformed to the image of Christ? Well, obviously it means that we are to reflect His godly character. And that's a gradual transformation that occurs in sanctification. So we are conformed to the image of Christ as we grow in godliness and we grow to be more like His holy character. But earlier in this chapter, Paul has given, I think, some other ways that we are gradually being conformed to His image. And that's in verse 17. That if we are children and we are by faith in Jesus Christ, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And so what Paul is saying here is that part of the way that we become conformed to the image of His Son is that we are conformed to His sufferings and then we are conformed to His glory. So in other words, we've got to go through the phases of Christ's life in the order in which He went through them. He had to bear the cross before He wore the crown. And there's a sense in which you and I will have to go through unjust suffering, innocent suffering, not because of our own sin, because we're being conformed to the image of Christ in His suffering. Christ who suffered not because of His sin and some of our sufferings will fall into that very same pattern. That's why I think Jesus told all of His disciples, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and do what? Take up his cross and follow Me. When Jesus took up His cross, He did it as an innocent sufferer. And sometimes you and I will have to take up our cross as an innocent Suffer is because we live in a sin cursed world where evil things happen, and sometimes we're in the crosshairs of the bullseye, and it's coming our way, not because we're guilty of any sin, but for this reason, God wants to make you more like His Son. And so that when we, when we go through suffering innocently or unjustly, it's a bit of a glory to think that I am suffering not for reasons because of my sin. It's unjust suffering because the Lord God Almighty wants to make me more like my Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the epitome of an innocent sufferer. 
and you're being conformed to his image. In closing, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 because there's a tremendous example of this in Peter's letter to the churches. His first letter, chapter 2. And notice what he says here, starting in verse 18. This is the, the exact same point that Peter is making to these servants These servants are under the authority of their masters and sometimes they suffer unjustly. Just like we do. But notice what he says to them. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You bear up under the sorrows of suffering unjustly. In other words, you persevere. Look at verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. When you do what is right, and yet you suffer for it, this finds favor with God. Why does it find favor with God? Let's read on. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps who committed no sin. See, Christ died unjustly. Christ bore the wrath of God, the justice of God for our sins. But He was innocent. He was without sin. He committed no sin. But He suffered on the cross And He is leaving an example for you and for me to follow. That's what Peter is saying to these servants. Let's read on. Verse 22, Committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. But while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And did He suffer Justly on the cross? No, no. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. So while Peter is encouraging these servants that are suffering unjustly, is persevere. See in it that your Savior has walked down the same path. He has suffered unjustly. He has suffered though He was innocent and though He had committed no sin. And it was a glory because of the good that came from it. Because He accomplished our redemption. He brought about the greatest good through the greatest evil of all human history. Out came the greatest good. And what Peter says is when you experience that too, when you experience unjust suffering, persecution, people do things to you that you don't deserve or people that come and afflict you or circumstances are so horrible or some some disease or whatever it may be, when you encounter the same kind of experience, this finds favor with God, Peter says. God is pleased. Why? He's making you like His Son. He's making you like Jesus Christ. And when we go through that experience, if we remember that, we can can see the glory of being conformed to the image of Christ as the innocent sufferer. And that when God ordains for us to go through the very same thing, we can see that it's a part of God's plan and purpose. When we suffer in imitation uh, to be more like Christ. Our suffering is not for atonement like Jesus' sufferings on the cross was, but it's for adornment. It's that He might clothe us more with the very character of Christ 
And that's a big reason why oftentimes our suffering is not due to sin, but it's due unjustly. It's due not because of our sin or anything that we've done, but merely because the Father in heaven wants to conform us more to the image of His Son. That's why Paul could say the longing of his heart, notice this, was that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There you have it. I want to be conformed to Christ in the cross and in the crown, in the suffering and in the glory of the resurrection. And Paul's heart was longing to know Christ in the fellowship of His suffering. And that suffering oftentimes will involve you suffering unjustly. But it's part of your glory. It's part of what God has ordained to make us more like His Son. And if we carry that thought with us into the midst of our unjust suffering, then God can give us more patience to persevere and endure as we see that it finds favor with God because He's making us more like Christ. Well, may the Lord encourage us from Job's example, not only his motivation to avoid sin because he feared the Father's discipline, but also as an example of one who suffered innocently. An example sometimes that we will have to live through as well. But if we remember that it's a part of God's plan to conform us more to the image of Christ, then we can see God's wisdom We can see His purpose and we can attain more grace from Him to persevere through it and bring Him glory. So may God encourage us and help us uh, through what we learn from our brother Job. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do want to thank You, Lord, for the Holy Spirit uh, giving us Job chapter 31. And as Job, as an innocent sufferer, anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the climactic, the greatest innocent sufferer of all time in the glory of redemption, in the glory of the substitutionary atonement, where He died for our sins, not for His own. And yet, we as our Father's children by grace, are made to imitate our Lord in that very same way. Not for atonement, but for adornment. To make us more like our Savior. To make us enter into the fellowship of His suffering. To taste the bitterness of unjust suffering. To grow in our love and appreciation for all that He did to suffer for our sins, to save us from the wrath of God that we deserve. So Lord, encourage our hearts, embolden us. Let us not take lightly the discipline of the Lord or faint when it comes upon us, but let us look to Christ and see the glory of the story of what He unfolds for us. And as Your Spirit works to gradually conform us to His image, may that encourage our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.